welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. With us today is Richard Syerson, co-founder and CISO at Soluble, previously CISO at Twilio, GE Healthcare, and Lending Club. He's the co-author of How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk and the author of The Metrics Manifesto, Confronting Security with Data. And we're here, obviously, to talk about measuring risk. Richard, thanks so much for coming down to the ranch. Alan, really pleased to be here. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. So why don't we talk a little bit about how you got started in cyber? Give us a little brief history of your uh, your cyber journey. Out of grad school, I was doing software development and risk management for a company that supported venture capital-backed organizations, about 500 of them. One of them was doing vulnerability management and they needed a developer with my particular skill set. So I jumped on a board and that was, gosh, well over 20 years ago. And it's been uphill or downhill, depending on how you look at it, ever since. (laughs) So how about your day job? What are you doing in cyber these days? I did three CISO gigs back to back, increasingly cloud native, each of them. And the problem that I confronted in each and every one was that it was getting harder and harder to secure cloud infrastructure prior to it getting deployed. So I had plenty of tools for taking care of it after the fact, but nothing that developers would even think of using or would find uh, palatable. So I decided before I yet did a fourth CISO gig, I would take a stab at trying to fix this problem. So that's what we're doing at Soluble. So we have probably the most developer-first approach to securing cloud infrastructure pre-deploy. And the good news is for very small teams, it is free. Oh, nice. Free is always a good thing. And that's yes. that's interesting to hear your journey from CISO to vendor, not just to be a vendor, but to actually solve some of the pain points you experienced as a CISO. I'm in the exact same boat now. My new CTO gig gets the exact same story. Um, I got ticked off about some things and was like, man, I'm going to go find somebody who can help me solve these things and go be their CTO. And here we are. Great. So that's awesome. So how about how about the books? Tell me a little bit about authoring the books. I know you've, you've co-authored one. You've written another one now as well. A little bit about that before we dive into the real questions here. Prior to my first CISO gig, I was at Kaiser Permanente running a big chunk of security operations for them and was challenged with how to really address prioritization of risk. Kaiser is a massive organization. I mean, the IT budgets, I think, were just north of $3 billion a year, right? So big risk and really a lot of dissatisfaction on my part in how to go about making the right decisions at the right time. So I like I think like you, I started reading broadly and talking to a lot of folks and ran across Doug Hubbard. Um, and Doug was doing work in this area specifically. His first book, How to Measure Anything, was great. We became friends. I used him on some consulting gigs. And he said, hey, Rich, I'd like to do a security. I'd like to do a spinoff on my first book and focus on security. Would you like to co-author it? And I said, I'd be pleased as punch to do that. And that's what we did. So we wrote a a book together. um, To my great surprise, despite 
a long gangly title and a pea green cover. It's done really well. It's become curriculum at the Department of Defense CISO program at a Carnegie Mellon, curriculum at Harvard, Brown, Berkeley, et cetera. And yeah, so it went well. And Wiley said, hey, Rich, would you like to do uh, another book? And I said, yes, actually, I'd like to do one that's perhaps maybe a little more um, SecOps oriented, a little more data science. And so that's the book that's about to come out called The Metrics Manifesto, Confronting Security with Data. That is awesome, man. And I'll have you know, I have two copies of uh, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk on my desk as we speak. Literally two copies. One that I got you to autograph uh, a couple of years ago at RSA now. And um, one that I'm uh, shipping to a coworker, actually. I was like, you got to have this. You've got to have a copy of this. So I'm, I'm spreading the, uh, the message as well. Uh, I love that book. I do. Uh, so let's, let's dive in and get into some of the questions then. I'll start with this one, which is kind of uh, something that we've all talked about in cybersecurity to some degree or another, but I don't know how much we really understand it and know it. People talk about how risk has been around longer than cyber, right? Risk is the discipline much older than cyber risk. You've got your insurance actuarial tables, business risks, all these things that have been around for a long time. What is it that cyber can be learning from these older traditions, these more established traditions in risk management? I'll dive in by talking about some of the older stuff in, in risk management because you brought it up. You know, actuarial tables go back about 500 years. Actually, they're called life tables. Um, in fact, the person who invented the actuarial or life table was a gentleman by the name of Grant. Um, he was a haberdasher by trade, so making lace or selling lace and hats and things like that. He was the, actually the first big data data scientist. He collected 70 years of mortality data, really plague data in London, and built this thing called the life table, which is now the um, actuarial table, used broadly in actuarial science, used broadly in epidemiology, in fact, used broadly by anyone in the sciences that's looking to measure time to event data, event historically being death, but listen, anything can be measured in terms of time to event, like patching, right? That's, that's just a great example. Or time to respond, time to recover, et cetera. So here is a guy, uh, you know, 450 years ago, who had a problem, was really resourceful, but not a man of society and not educated. Actually, what he did was actually noticed by the king, and he was actually brought into uh, this Royal Academy to the chagrin of all the other folks. But yeah, here's a guy who had a business problem, really, in many cases, and was just an amateur and loved to solve problems. I would say, what do we need more of? We need more of that. I think in, in many ways, what we see with security is that, you know, we don't want to avail ourselves of older established practices. Um, we want to reinvent, you know, we have a not invented here approach. Yet, if we look at actuarial sciences, we look at epidemiology, we look at other things, they're using these methods that are, in case of Bayesian methods, 250 years old, in the case of the actuarial table, approaching 500 years old. Well, what stops us? So I don't know if I went off the ranch there, so to speak, but... Uh, no, that's uh, that's that. good. That's exactly the sort of thing I'm looking for. Because I, you know, I, I was just recording a show not even a week ago, and talking through with a friend, another Texas boy here in cyber, and we were talking about this whole idea of you know measuring risk accurately versus the good old conventional five by five risk matrix, the likelihood times impact matrix. And I know in your book, one of the first things you do is dismantle that as being no better than a wet finger in the wind sort of thing, if if even that good. And yet. Time and time again, we see CISOs falling back on it. We see businesses expecting it. We see boards looking for that heat map, looking for that red, green, yellow wave after wave of color in some sort of a grid, you know, top right, good, bottom left, bad. 
What's wrong with the classic 5x5 risk matrix? Why why is that not good enough despite so many of us still clinging to it and, and so many of us even having it asked of us? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a statistician. I'm more in line with a haberdasher or, or someone who lives in the bottom of the salt mine. So just just know that when it comes to what I'm about to say, you know, I think what a scientist would say is, is that tool, is it a consistently applied, mathematically unambiguous yardstick? I mean, I think that's what a, a measurement expert certainly would say that because I, I know them. I hang out and have drinks with them. And I think scientists at large would say, is it a consistently applied mathematically unambiguous yardstick? And the answer would be no. It's an inconsistent, non-mathy, PowerPoint slide generating tool. If your goal is to make PowerPoints and cast spells and use hypnotic language patterns in front of boards and then get out of there, then I suppose you can use that. If your job is to manage risk in a mathematically unambiguous, consistent manner, then you probably have to sit and ask yourself, what am I doing? Why am I using this? Now, listen, if you're going to have a five by five matrix and you can rank order your risks and you have a mathematically unambiguous rationale as to why you've rank ordered them so it can be auditable, then you can apply whatever colors you want and put them into whatever sort of map you want. But if you if you can answer how you're rank ordering and you're doing it in a mathematically consistent way, then go for it. You can paint a Picasso. Yeah. One of the questions, and I, I think this one comes from the book as well, this idea that we, we all, when we're using the five by five matrix, you know, we show that five worse than one, right? Five bad, one good, you know, and then we have four bad, two good. And then the question becomes, is four truly twice as bad as two? Is is four two times two really? Is it that sort of a scale? And I guess that's kind of what you're hitting at here is that whatever the measurements are behind it, a vague one to five where we aren't even mathematically stepping through and saying four really is twice as bad as two, five really is two and a half times as bad as two, I guess. Unless we have math like that on the back end, then our front end really is just, uh, to your point, sort of casting spells in the boardroom. Is that the yeah. gist? It's an ordinal scale or an order scale, mm-hmm. you know, one through four or whatever. And where you're saying, hey, look, order matters. But the reality is, is they're just buckets. You're going you're gonna to have so many things that are in the four bucket, so many things in the three bucket. But mathematically speaking, there is no ratio. There is no way to say how different is three than four. If you say, hey, look, I'm just using these as buckets. You've got this many four things and you've got this many three things and things that are in the four bucket get treated by this SLA. Things in the four bucket get these sort of, you know, get these sort of treatments. Things in the three bucket get these sort of treatments, right? That's a fine way to use ordinal scales. That's the way you should use ordinal scales. But when you start saying, okay, now I'm going to do like math on them and treat them as if like they're a temperature or they're, you know, some real mathy object, then you can get yourself into real trouble. As long as we use ordinal scales correctly, more like buckets, we're, we're going to be fine. So switching gears here, having a widespread scattering of expert opinions is is one of the one of the examples that that was in your book that I that I found to be very fascinating. This idea that when we talk about what is what is real accuracy and what is not, and what is measurable and what is not, and how do I get to to how do I get to a measured place from this unmeasured chaos? And in this particular example, the unmeasured chaos was this scattering of expert opinions, where you go and consult with twenty five folks in the business, and you get twenty five different opinions back. In theory, these are all experts. I have no idea how to weight this guy's more expert than that guy. This gal's more than that gal. I have no idea how to measure or weigh that. I just know that I have twenty five disparate opinions. How can we improve the accuracy of that, or how can we leverage those twenty five disparate opinions into a model that that gives us accuracy? Like, what's the what's the magic there? When we start using the word forecasting and, and we start bringing the word expert opinion in there, you know, I think a lot of people, and rightly so, react to, well, that sounds like astrology. You're forecasting the future, which actually doesn't really exist, right? No one can really do that. Um, so what are we really doing? Well, the idea is this. 
we might have some limited data, right? We may have some empirical data, some telemetry coming from some data generating process, or we may have no empirical data showing up from some data generating process at all. We right? have no telemetry. Yet you and I as CISOs are going to be called to make a bet about something. Right, a bet about a lot of things. And invariably, we are going to use subject matter expert opinion, perhaps our own, perhaps gardeners, perhaps our staffs. We're already doing that. And that is the model that we're already modeling, and that's a model that already exists. So the question is can you make that model measurably better? Okay, measurably better. So the answer is yes. I mean, if you look at Daniel Kahneman, you know, Nobel Prize in economics, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow, et cetera, one of the most cited papers, him and Tversky in, in the sciences, the answer they would say is yes, you can make that measurably better, right? How do we know it's better? Well, first of all, is consistency better? If you're inconsistently applying a bad model, does consistently applying a bad model make it better? I'd say, well, yes, actually, let's be consistent. By the way, mo all models are bad. All models are wrong. You've heard this, right? Yeah. George Box. A, a model is not the thing. It's a, it's a model. A model is like an API to help us you know, get things done, right? It abstracts away a lot of information that may not be necessary for the task at hand so we can get something done. So if I can create a, a model where I'm collecting subject matter expert data in a consistent sort of way, and then over time, I can determine whether it's made whatever thing I'm trying to get done better or worse, then, you know, I've learned something. But we're always modeling. And the default will be to use a wild, inconsistent guess. And then we take crayons out and make PowerPoints. We get these scattered expert opinions. We apply a more consistent model to them. We end up gaining more than if we had an inconsistent model, even though that source data may not necessarily be the, the cleanest or the most telling or the most consistent in its own right. A consistently applied model to in inputs that may not be the best, you're still going to actually gain better accuracy is, is basically the, the proposition there. So strictly speaking, what we're doing with the expert wild guesses is if there is some information that can help us constrain a forecast, right? So, and this gets into kind of the Bayesian stuff, and I think we might talk about that a bit later. But the idea is if there is some expert opinion that can help constrain the forecast you're making, then why not use it, right? And so that's really the proposition is if you have some data coming from experts that can help you either A, reduce your uncertainty, Right, because you have maybe you have you know you have some limited data, you have some limited empirical data, some limited telemetry. You want, and because you have small data, you have a tremendous amount of uncertainty. But you have some expert opinion that could help. Then great, why not use that? And it can work in the reverse as well. You might have some really biased telemetry, maybe a small sample set, and you have some expert opinion that says no, no, you're that data is overly biased, and you actually use the expert opinion to actually flatten it out a little bit more, right? To actually in, put in some uncertainty. That happens as well. So these are methods that have been used for you know decades and decades. And the thing that I want to encourage security to do is let's look outside of ourselves. Let's look to experts in other fields and adopt their methods. And by the way, if we find that their methods don't work or don't help, then we learn something. We learned, oh, that model didn't work. We don't throw modeling away. We don't say, oh, therefore, therefore, math does not work. That's a very anti-scientific approach to anything. Right. And, and it's interesting. I know in y'all's book, 
you, you get into, and we're going to talk, as you pointed out, a little bit about Bayesian math and Monte Carlo Sims. We'll, we'll be getting into that in a moment here. But you mentioned that there are existing models in cyber that that leverage some of these same tools, and, and we'll go ahead and talk about it. I'm, I haven't done a show on it yet, but I want to do a show on FAIR. I really want to dig into FAIR. And FAIR is one model and one example of some of this more mathematically applied and more measurable and more consistently measurable sort of approach. And I know that's not necessarily one way or the other, something you're advocating or not advocating, but it is a model. It is a model that's out there. To your point about we have various models on the table. And I know its adoption is growing in the industry. I know a lot of folks are really starting to embrace it. I've personally downloaded a bunch of materials, uh, had a friend who's uh, a veteran affair and already using it come present, not just to me, but to my peers at my company as well. Like, like let's, let's dive into FAIR and get a free tutorial on FAIR. And I'm floored with how granular it can get measuring a specific risk. And then at a larger level, it's using some of the same mathematical concepts you guys have in your book. Um, one of the things that came out of that mathematical analysis that I, that I saw, and I thought this was interesting, um, and it's a little bit perhaps of a deviation from FAIR itself, but this idea that you may not have anywhere near as many data points as you would like to have, that you can fine-tune this model, you can get a mathematical system going, you can get accurate and consistent measurement going, but you don't have a whole lot of data to feed it and yet still get meaningful results. And I was fascinated by that concept. Like, can you walk me through a little bit of that? How do we... How do we gather an accurate view when we have a scan offering of data? I'm going to lift it up a little bit of a higher level. So statistics came about because people literally needed to make bets and they had limited information and what information they had was dirty, right? I mean, that's the whole field of sciences was based on making bets. In some cases, life or death situations where we don't have enough data and what data we have is dirty. So we create methods to simulate reality, oftentimes cheaply particularly with computers, right? So I want a real fast method to take scant, dirty data and produce some result that gives me an edge on the house, right? That's all that we're doing with statistics. Um, and, and I'm gonna say most security people, and this is just a function of a lack of exposure, most security people don't get that. They think, oh, I need all the data to use measurement. But that has nothing to do with measurement. You only measure when you're uncertain. Like, I don't think I'm gonna fit through that hole. Well, let me get out a ruler. And now I'm more certain. You only measure when you're uncertain. You don't measure when you have all the data. When you have all the data, you move on to the next problem. You know, FAIR uses Monte Carlo scenarios. They use simulations. They use mathy stuffs. Um, I think it's largely a non-empirical methods. I, I'm not up to date on it. FAIR is great. Use FAIR. So the stuff that Doug and I really dug, and now I'm kind of building on that. We still work together a lot. But uh, the methods that Doug proposed, they're not his methods. He'll be the first one to tell you, right? The Monte Carlo, he didn't invent Monte Carlo scenarios. Uh, Monte Carlo scenarios exist. They're, they exist to simulate a, a data-generated process. You Maybe it's formally management. Maybe it's threat management. Maybe it's um, identity access management provisioning. Whatever. You have a small amount of data, and you're looking to simulate. You either don't have enough money to generate a lot of data, or it's very hard. But you have some data. You have some idea about the constraints of a data-generating process, and you want to simulate it cheaply because you're cheap. Um, and you don't want to do the calculus because you're not good at calculus. So use a Monte Carlo scenario to do that. And you use that data then to say, oh, okay, well, given what how this, this system seems to behave, given what we know, let's try this. Let's see if that works. We'll go this way. And that's all that we're doing here. And that's the same thing with, with FAIR statistics. All right. So you're just putting in a, a small amount into the hopper and letting the Monte Carlo engine. And Monte Carlo always outputs a range, right? It's not it's not a single discrete answer. It's always a range. It's a probability curve. Isn't that the result of a Monte Carlo scenario? 
And when you're simulating a data generating process, call it sampling, call it Monte Carlo, whatever particular method you're using. And depending on if you're doing a, you've heard frequentist versus Bayesian, if you're doing a frequentist approach, you'll have, you know, a confidence interval. That means something slightly different than the Bayesian approach, which is a credible interval. And statisticians create these intellectual prophylactics to keep the commenters out. I don't know why they do that. Because you're measuring your uncertainty, right? I, I, I want to make sure whatever methods I use, they retain my uncertainty without obscuring my certainty. Again, I want to use methods that retain my uncertainty without obscuring my certainty, given the data that I have and given the particular model that I'm using. Right. And so I'm just looking, trying to be honest about how much I don't know. And typically you're going to have some data generating process over time that wiggles. It, I mean, usually it just, and particularly if you don't have a lot of data, without a lot of data, you have a lot of wiggle. And so you just want to be honest about what you're coming back and saying. And again, if you're in a position where you still have to make a bet, meaning you're still going to buy goodies, get invest in people process technology, or you're going to transfer risk into insurance, you, you know, you want to try to be as honest as possible. About. All right. Hope I'm not getting too too statsy. No, no, no. This makes perfect sense, and it, and it ties back to one of the one of the tenets in your book that I that I found to be fascinating was um, let's see here, and I want to make sure I'm phrasing it correctly. Measurement is not necessarily giving a specific number. Measurement is nothing more than the reduction of uncertainty. It sounds like something someone smarter than me would say. That must have been Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this idea that measurement is really there to reduce uncertainty only. And and if that's the case, if, if reducing uncertainty I, 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 is... I'm going to say that's not exactly true. Okay. I'm going to say in some... I, I think for a lot of security people, it's about imputing, injecting uncertainty. Okay. Sometimes I think, you know, when you say, just give me the number, you... This is just kind of, you were saying this already, if I'm going to say, okay, I just, give me the number. Like, okay, I can give you a number, right? We can give you the, you know, the, the best average possible from this data set. But the reality is, is that you have a data generating process. It's a capability that has emergent properties. It spits out data over time. And, you know, you probably want to have some idea about how much that wiggles, don't you? Well, in that case, we're actually including more uncertainty. Right. We're trying to be, I call it being honest. By the way. Embracing the uncertainty. And that's where you speak to confidence intervals. You say, you don't say, hey, I ran your numbers and your your score is a 3.5. You say there's a 90% likelihood that your score is between a three and a four. Well, that'd be more of a credible interval. You sound like a Bayesian. Um, the, the interpretation of a confidence interval is slightly different, but at the same time, they're at a high level, they're both about trying to be a little more accurate about our uncertainty. Right. Yes. And and capturing the uncertainty and sharing that with the data that's output, basically, just just acknowledging it's there and, and at the same time trying to get a handle on it. Yeah. And, you know, the belief, I think, is, and this is where maybe some of the matrix thinking comes out is, well, executives are going to be really uncomfortable if you, you know, give them uncertain numbers. And I'm like, like, well, you know, most executives deal with sales forecasts, for example, and other sundry things. They're, they're used to that. They're used to uncertainty. Who ever said they were not used to uncertainty? They are entrepreneurs, many of them. They're, they live, eat, and breathe uncertainty. They, they eat it for breakfast. So security, get over it. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that one. This idea that, that somehow we've self-imposed on ourselves as security practitioners, that somehow we have to be more, uh, I'm going to laughingly use the word scientific because it's not really more scientific to be insisting on squeezing out that 3.5 from the process as opposed to a, a range or a, or, a, or a discussion about uncertainty or confidence. Why do we drive ourselves? Why have we compelled ourselves to, to get to that point where we, we go to the board and say, you, sir, have a 3.5, you, ma'am, have a 3.7, like like just to, to try to give that exact specific number that we know isn't even accurate, that, that we don't have the math or the science to justify having produced it, and yet we feel compelled to be that way in front of our boards. I, I wonder where that comes from and why we're doing that to ourselves, especially as, as you point out, the sales forecast guys aren't doing that. Where, where did this hang up come from? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. By the way, you know, when I'm having, like you, having presented to many boards, you know, I don't lead with presenting the sausage factory of mathematics. First of all, most people on boards are, are just, they're far more educated than I am, particularly the case when I was at GE. And so what I'm presenting usually is a set of decisions that have been made. And I've used all this stuff as a way of ensuring that I have a ready answer, particularly for those areas where I'm uncertain. I had one case where I had, you know, my first move was to invest in cyber insurance. And the reason being is because we carried so much risk that my investment in people process technology would take three years to ever catch up with the amount of mitigation it would make if there was a real bad day. If the person who ran audit committee then said, hey, I want to sit down for three hours and really go through your thinking, like how you came up with that. I mean, this, getting $10 million in cyber insurance is like a hundred thousand bucks. It wasn't like no one cared, but I care, uh, but uh, I want to be able to have a very competent discussion with somebody. If I've made a decision under uncertainty, I want to be able to say, hey, look, this is why this, I took into consideration these sets of controls, people want technology. I took into consideration what we know about probable future loss, what we, you know, what's the value at risk. And this is the awful model I made that helped drive the, the decision. And it didn't take me long. It wasn't expensive for me to do this. This is easy. Here you go. So that that's actually one of the one of the criticisms I've heard of fair is that you know people describe it as the as a chemistry experiment that you're basically walking in front of the board and <laughs> setting up beakers and <laughs> test tubes and flames and all this other stuff that it's a little too much stuff going on scientifically mathematically to be presenting to the board but what you're saying is using your methodologies your be it Monte Carlo be it Bayesian whatever you're putting together here using that in the back room and putting together a more palatable board ready front end and having that that science experiment at the ready if it's needed, but not as the primary presentation, basically. That's what I'm hearing you say. People get really disappointed hearing that, but I am a CISO and I you know, was a CISO for Fortune 10 and for various other GE, Twilio, et cetera, like that. And I use these methods for the guy who's in charge of security. That's me. Yeah. Um, the senior executive who was, and I use them when I have something, I mean, there's a lot of things that we're certain about. We're going to do these things. There are, just, there are certain things you have to invest in security. You just have to do it. I mean, there's just, we're going to do MFA. Right. We're just doing it. And we're going to do the the one that's good enough, that's cheap enough. That's cheap, that fits our my budget, that I can get, but I'm going to do it. Right. I'm not going to, where's your Monte Carlo? I don't, I don't need one. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I am using the methods for myself and I don't, I'm not going to go to a board meeting. And I mean, I suppose I could present an S-curve if there was some appetite for that. Maybe, again, for audit committee, for a separate set of meetings, I, I might do that. But I'm the senior executive, and I have uncertainty, and I'm looking to drive better decisions. I'm looking for something that's going to make me rigorous in my thinking. And and that's a whole other podcast we could record about how do we take all this mathematical uh, exercise around the uncertainty and convert that to a, a board friendly presentation like in between those two there's a, there's a there's a whole nother realm of thinking and, and of uh, readiness to present so we're getting close to the end of the show I've got one question I love to ask every guest and you'll be you'll you'll laugh at this um, for the first six months of the show I'm going to be recording the answers to the same question from every guest and we're going to be producing some statistical analysis uh, and that question is what keeps you going in cybersecurity why are you still in the game other than what I do for my day gig, a lot of the stuff that I spend my time thinking about for my career and for this field, for the veterans field, is measurement. So this podcast is about. And my observation is that real fields of study emerge 
through the sieve of measurement. And I would argue that security hasn't as a field experienced that yet. I guess I, I liken security as a field in comparison to other fields of endeavor. We are in our adolescence and we are, we are adolescents with a high mortality rate. The question I have is, are, you know, are we going to make it? Meaning, are we going to become a serious field? I would argue that we, it, I'm not saying security problems aren't serious. They're, they're serious. I'm talking about a field of practice that's, that's real, that's substantial, right? And so I would argue that we need to adopt the methods of you know, science or the grammar of science. Listen, what is, what is the grammar of science? It's statistics. What is it invented for? I have small, messy data and I need to make a bet. I don't have enough information and I, need, and I have a life or death thing in front of me and I need to make a decision. Statistics was invented for messy realities. I would argue that it was ready-made for security. If you look at any field, epidemiology, the natural sciences, actuarial science, if that is a thing, in, in any, anything, there is no decoupling of measurement with that field whatsoever. So I look forward to seeing security emerge out of its adolescence alive and as a grounded field of study with much more statistical practices involved in it. And, and I'm not a statistician, I'm like an amateur. Like I said, I'm, an, I'm a haberdasher. Um, I'm an API, part-time API user of the statistical sciences. But I got there because I was at the bottom of the salt mine dealing with large risks and I was at a loss and had to look outside myself because I wasn't smart enough. And I had to look at other people who seemed to be dealing with large amounts of chaos, who were dealing with a lot of uncertainty where the decisions mattered. And I look forward, and the thing that, that drives me is trying to help that discussion, help that reality become more emergent in security. So that's what drives me forward. And that's the horse or donkey I'll be riding on over the sunset with. Hope for the future of the industry itself. I, I heard someone say one time that being a CISO today is like being a, a CFO before generally accepted accounting practices were developed. Exactly. Um, and I think that's that's what you mean with with your comment about we're still adolescents in our field. Well, listen, Richard Syerson, co-founder and CISO of Soluble, previously CISO at Twilio, GE Healthcare and Lending Club, co-author of How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, and the author of the soon-to-be-released The Metrics Manifesto, Confronting Security with Data, Thank you so much for coming on down to the Cyber Ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 